But the Word of God says fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, those that live that lifestyle shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I want to tell you something. Even if they go to church, and even if they're on the board, or even if they're in the pulpit, it doesn't make any difference. If that's their lifestyle, Paul says, don't be deceived. Whatever he says, don't be deceived, usually that's the area where there's going to be deception. It doesn't make any difference how religious they are, how excitable. I've had people say, these are the finest people in our church. They're the hardest working and the, the best giving people and the most excited people. I said, mm-hmm. Bill Gothard talks about that. He says, they're operating out of guilt. And they're doing everything they can to try to get rid of this guilt inside them. In fact, he says, they'll read a stack of books this high on why it's okay to be where they are and do what they're doing. But he says, the only thing they don't understand is that guilt isn't in the mind, it's in the spirit. It's the shame of adultery shall never leave, the Bible says. So if a person's living in adultery or fornication, they can talk all they want to, but they are not saved, according to the Word of God, until they repent of that. Admit it and quit it. It's eternally serious. I've had some people, of course, I went to seminary, and uh, I almost thought it was a cemetery. And I told them, you know, I don't have to lose my faith here. I can go to university and lose my faith if that's what I want to do. Uh, but some of them in there said, we want you to know that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is not necessarily heaven. He's not saying they won't go to heaven. They're saying that the kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. They're saying that if they live in fornication, or if they live in adultery, even though they're Christians, that they will not have joy and peace in this present life. They'll have struggles and troubles. I said, that is theological garbage. Let's find out what Jesus said is going to happen to the adulterer. Matthew, the fifth chapter. Let's find out the kingdom of heaven is heaven itself, where Christ rules. Now, if they don't go there, they're going to go somewhere else. Look at Matthew, the fifth chapter, beginning of the 28th verse. But I say unto you, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. Now, let me explain to you why he said that. Back in that day, there were those who would say, well, but Lord, you don't understand. It wasn't me that sinned. It was my eye. <laughs> this little old nasty eye has really been giving me trouble lately. I have been looking at things I shouldn't be looking at. It's not really just my eye. And later, Jesus, of course, said that all these things come from our hearts. But they said, no, it's my eye, or it's my hand that made me steal, not me, it's this hand. I've got to get better control of this hand. So Jesus just took that illustration and said, well, if that's the case, pluck your eye out and cast it away from you. If that's the case, cut off your hand and cast it away from you. And what did he say? Why did he say they should do that? Because he said it's better to go into eternity without one of your members than to be cast with your, with your member into Gehenna, which is the place of eternal fire, which is the place of damnation. It's the place called hell. It's the place of eternal destruction. Over in uh, uh, the 18th chapter and the, and the 8th verse of Matthew, it says ever, a place of everlasting fire. In 18.9, it's called the place of hellfire. In Mark 9.43, it's the place where the fire is never quenched. In Luke 16, 23, it's in hell, and they're tormented in the flame. The kingdom of heaven is being with the Lord. And if the adulterer, if he does not repent of that adultery, the Bible says they will end up in hell. Paul says, don't be deceived. They'll not inherit heaven. Now, we're getting into a serious problem here because I know that I am probably hitting, touching on some families tonight who have it in your family. Can I tell you something? My family shot through with it. 
May I just go one step deeper and let you know how hard it was for me to have to learn and teach this lesson? My mother was married and had five children, and her husband ran off after he beat her up and left her, and she had to take in washings to try to raise those five children, and then my father, who had never been married, came along and married her. And I'm an offspring. I'm a bastard born out of wedlock as far as God's Word is concerned. They lived in adultery, and I'm an offspring of that. And I had to look into the Word of God and say, that doesn't make any difference. God's Word is true. I've had people say, well, that can't be true because my daughter or my son. I'm sorry about your daughter or your son. It doesn't change the Word of God. We do not set our theology according to experience. We change our theology according to the Word of God and then tell other people to get in line because God's Word is not going to move. You understand me? God didn't call us to make people feel good. He called us to declare the Word of God. He said, in fact, his, his coming and His Word was going to separate families. Read it for yourself. It's in the Scripture. He said, I came with a sword. I'm going to separate father and mother and daughter and son. And I'm going to do this in the home. And it's happening today. You see, if I say that, and I can just give you an example. I know the pastor that used to just say absolutely that uh, you were saved, you could be lost. Saved, you could be, you know, you, you could, you, he was what they call an Armenian. The Word of God is settled forever in the heavens, the Scripture says. And it's like silver, seven times refined. God speaketh no careless word. He said not one jot or one tittle will go unfulfilled. And if God's word says the adulterers cannot inherit the kingdom of God, they better get ready because that's where they're going to end up if they're not willing to admit it and quit it. You say, but oh, the turmoil in our society today, there's only one thing that's going to make more turmoil, and that is not to repent of it. If you think this generation is bad, just wait until the next one. And I'll tell you right now, and you can put it down in your notes, and you can come back and check with me later on. Within 10 years, we're going to be using the same scripture. They're going to be using the same scriptures to justify sodomy in the church. The homosexuals are going to be able to come into the churches. And you know right now what the laws say? That if a, if a, a homosexual group a person comes into this church, and you receive them and let them sing in the choir or let them go to a fellowship and what and so on and so forth, three months later, if your pastor gets up and preaches on Sodom and Gomorrah, he can sue the church and take you for everything you've got, all the officers and everyone else. You have to have in print, in writing, available the first time they walk through that door to where if they, if they look around, they can see it, or what your stand is on that thing. We're living in tremendous days. And if you and I don't want to stand for the Word of God, we'll fall for anything. What constitutes marriage? Let me read to you my definition, and this is the definition I put together from reading a lot of different definitions of marriage, and I added my own to it. Marriage is a universal process of divine origin and regulation by which a man, a man, and a woman, by mutual consent, are united by God for the purpose of living together permanently in love in order to establish and maintain a home and a family. That's my definition of marriage. God is the original, the originator of marriage, and there in the Garden of Eden we read about it. And then I have people say, well, that, my, this person, though, they, 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 they got divorced and remarried before they ever became Christians. So that's different. Is it? I had a man on television, a big television evangelist one day, and I about fell off my chair. He said, there's not one word in the Word of God that says anything that God even recognizes unbelievers' marriages. I thought, man, it's an open book test. Why don't you read it for yourself? It's there. My book has one whole chapter that tells you that God recognizes unbelievers' marriages. Let me just give you a few verses. I won't go through all of them. Remember Cain 
was angry and turned his way self away from God and he went out. But the scripture says in Genesis 4, 16 and 17 that Cain married wives. In Genesis 20, verses 1 through 18, remember when Abraham went down to where Abimelech was king and uh, he said to, to uh, Sarah, tell him you're my sister. And he took Sarah into his uh, harem. And then God awakened in the middle of the night and said, don't you touch that woman, that's my prophet's wife. He said, I didn't know that. He said, I know. If you had, if you had known and touched her, you would have been a dead man. He said, now restore him, her to my prophet and have him pray for you. And it says that Abraham prayed for him and God opened the wombs of his wives, all his wives, for God had closed their wombs. Now this was an unbeliever. And the Bible says that God opened and closed their wombs and called them his wives. Don't say God doesn't recognize unbelievers' marriages. How about Joseph when he, in Genesis 39, verses 7 through 9, when Joseph was in Potiphar's house, remember he was serving Potiphar, and uh, Potiphar's wife came to him and said, Come lay with me. What did Joseph say? He had more sense than a lot of preachers today. He said, I cannot do this thing before my God because thou art his wife. Here's an unbelieving couple. You're his wife. I can't do that before God. Don't tell me God doesn't recognize unbelievers' marriages. How about 1 Kings 16.31? Talking about Ahab, the king, said he was the worst king in the whole world. And it's almost humorous because God goes on saying, if that weren't bad enough, that he was the most corrupt, rotten king that ever lived, he married that woman Jezebel. I sure hope God never says that about some of our wives. I tell you, it wasn't bad enough that he was just bad. All that. I mean, he, then he went out and married this woman Jezebel. That even made it worse. God recognized Ahab and Jezebel as a marriage. When Daniel, they couldn't find anything wrong with Daniel's ruling and reigning there when he was in exile. Remember, they went to the king and said, let's make a law of the land that no one can worship or pray to anyone but you for the next 30 days. And he said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. So he put his signet on it. And then they said, now we've got him. Because every day, three times a day, Daniel would pray. And so they went, took Daniel, they said, we found Daniel here, he was praying, so we've got to get rid of him. So the king felt very badly about it because he loved Daniel, knew Daniel was a very righteous man, but he had signed this and it could not be revoked. The law had to go through. So he threw Daniel in the lion's den, and God gave him lockjaw, and they slept, he slept on top of all those lions, stayed nice and warm that night, and the next morning the king came and says, oh, Daniel, sit down there. He said, yes, he said, I'm here. He pulled him up out of there, and the Bible says, that the king took all the men that had accused him and their wives and their children and threw them all headlong into the lion's den and the lions caught them while they were still falling in the air and ripped them to shreds. Now, God spoke this word and said that all those men that accused, how many of you think those the men that accused Daniel of praying to someone besides the king were Christians or believers? He didn't just didn't take care, didn't judge just the men. He judged them and their wives and their children. Don't let anyone tell you that God does. How about you know? I just I felt so badly that John the Baptist didn't go to a good seminary. He could have saved his head. I mean, how silly the guy could he be? He went over and talked to a heathen, half Indian, half whatever it was, king, and he said it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He wasn't talking about the Ten Commandments. He wasn't talking about the the law of the uh, Medes and Persians, he was talking about the law of the marriage. And it made the king and uh, Herod and Herodias so mad that uh, they, they cut his head off. Now, if he'd gone to a good seminary, they'd say, well, you know, that they weren't really Christians, so that doesn't count. 
How about Pilate when uh, Pilate was judging Jesus and his, his wife in Matthew 27, 19, his wife came to him and said, have nothing to do with this just man. The Bible is replete with verses that show that God knows and recognizes unbelievers' marriages. How about in Luke 17, verses 26 and 27, when Jesus spoke about Noah's day? He said they were marrying and giving in marriage until the flood came. Now, was that the believers that were doing that? Hello? Was that the believers? No, the believers were on the ark, weren't they? But the unbelievers were marrying and giving in marriage. God said, I recognize all that. In fact, it got so bad, it said that all the generations were corrupted to where they couldn't even follow the line of the, the bloodline of the Messiah anymore. And they were corrupted to where they couldn't even follow the line of the, the bloodline of the Messiah anymore, that only Noah was still upright in all of his generations. God says the bloodline is still there. I'll save Noah and his family and have to destroy the rest of the earth. That's how bad it got. God recognizes unbelievers' marriage. Don't ever let anyone tell you they don't. Don't let them give you this idea, well, that happened before I was a Christian. God still recognizes that marriage. If you're living in adultery, admit it and quit it. Let me just tell you some reasoning here. First of all, if marriages of unbelievers are not recognized, then no unbeliever is married. They have, don't have to be the least bit faithful to any woman. Unbelievers just go around like alley cats. Just, and God won't even recognize you. Rec isn't that ridiculous? Isn't that foolish? The second thing is if only Christians can commit adultery, then only Christians are adulterers. And it's the adulterers that aren't going to go to heaven. Isn't that kind of silly? Think about it. But this is the reason that people trying to tell us. And if unbelievers' marriages are not recognized by God when they get saved, is that when they get recognized? Is that only the time to tell? Or at that time, can they say, well, let's stop and think about this. Do I really want to live with you now that I'm a Christian or not? I think I'll go get me a Christian wife, you know? Another Christian wife. You see, Paul the Apostle, even in the book of Corinthians, said that for the believer, if, you have, if you're a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, Stay with them. God recognizes that. It's disobedient. Christians are not supposed to be married to unbelievers. But what if you have two unbelievers and one of them gets saved? So they say, well, now I'm going to leave you and marry me a godly man? No. You're supposed to stay with that person unless they won't have anything to do with you. Then you're able to move out and remain single until you can get reconciled to them and then move back in if God allows that to happen. But there's no place in here that says that God doesn't recognize unbelievers' marriages. Now, there are unrecognized marriages. They're called forbidden marriages in the Scripture, and that's if a mother and a son tried to get married, or a father and a daughter tried to get married, or a man and a man and a woman and a woman tried to get married. God said in, in Deuteronomy 23 that that's unseemly and it's unnatural. They can make all the vows they want to, but God won't hear them. I, I saw a, a film videotaped by uh, a pastor from out in New York City who flew out to West and went into a metropolitan church and videotaped a marriage of two homosexuals. And he just wanted us to see it. It was, it was the return to Sodom was the name of this, this video. Show us where we've come to. And he called these two men back and said, would you like to share with me why you are getting married here in the church? And they said, that's because we love Jesus Christ and we're going to try to be the best witness and testimony we possibly can be for him now that we're together. Now, you want to know how far we've come away from God's Word. Back in the 80s, I had a copy of Christianity Today magazine that's in my book, a copy of the article, it said, we as heterosexual Christians must be more patient with our homosexual brothers in Christ who, having been accustomed to having four or five hundred partners a year, a year, are now trying to find one other Christian homosexual partner to live with in a holy relationship. I thought, gag me with a spoon. 
This was a, an evangelical magazine, and it was the author of that magazine that said it. We're living in horrendous days. Biblical marriages create one flesh, and we're united by God. Matthew, the 19th chapter. Matthew, the 19th chapter. Verse 3, And the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Again, they're talking about Shammai or Hillel, the two schools of rabbinical schools of theology. Is it right to do this? And uh, he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And they say unto him, Why did Moses command? We, we went down through that. But the thing I want you to see here is that they were united again by God. It says it in Mark, it says it in Matthew, and it says it in Luke. The next thing is they're not married by a sex relationship. I talked about that a while ago. Matthew 1.25. Matthew 1.25. First of all, let me go back up to verse 18. It talks about the, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. It talks about Mary, the wife of Joseph, being betrothed to him. Joseph, the husband of Mary, being betrothed to him. What were they saying? They were only engaged. And it was during this time of engagement that Joseph found out that Mary was with child, and he was going to, what does it say there in uh, verse 19? Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily, quietly. Divorce, put her away, actually in the Greek is divorce her. He's going to divorce her very quietly. He thought she had committed fornication. He's going to put her away. And then the angel came to him and said, Don't be afraid to take her, Mary, thy wife, take unto thee, Mary, thy wife. They're not married yet. They're calling her his wife. They're not married yet. And they said that she was, uh, he was her husband. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she'll bring forth a son in his name will be Jesus. And then uh, verse 24, And Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. In other words, he brought home Mary home to be his wife. He married her. And then verse 25, look at it very carefully now, And knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. He took her home, married her, took her home as his wife, but he had no relationship with her until Jesus was born. But they were still one flesh. They were already married, but they were still one flesh, even though they had not had a physical relationship. Physical relationship does not make one flesh. It is the privilege of being one flesh. Do I need to say that again? It does not make you to be one one flesh. It is the privilege because you are one flesh, and the marriage bed is undefiled. We're not made one flesh by the church. When I stand up and have a marriage ceremony, and most pastors I know do this too, just simply say, I, by the authority vested in me by the state of Iowa or the state of Florida, I pronounce you husband and wife. Now why? Because they, they, the state government says we've got to have somebody that witnesses this stuff so we can keep our records straight. So they say, well, now you're a pastor or you're somebody else is a justice of the peace. We appoint you as the one that's responsible for listening to their voices, listening to their promises, and making sure they fulfill their obligations. And then you write that down, that they did that, that you witnessed that, and you put that and send it to us, put it on the certificate and send it to us. And then we will say, okay, now according to pastor such and such, uh, they said what they're supposed to say, they did what they're supposed to set, do, so we can put that in the records there now, Mr. and Mrs., and we can record it and keep our society in proper order. So the, I don't make them one flesh. And we say, even in our ceremony, what God has joined together, before God needs wisdom, what God has joined together. And the state, the government, 
does not make you one flesh. You want to record. May I just tell you something? Because so many Christians have allowed the state to say that you can separate again, separate twain again. They say, well, hey, the state must have made us one flesh so the state can separate us again. The state says, well, since we have that authority, why don't we just take charge of your children too? Hello? We say, what's the state doing coming in against our children? Hey, the church gave them the authority. They said, you make us one place and you can separate us. And our churches are permeated with it today. You know, the government, anything you give them, they'll take it. If you give them an inch, they'll think they're a ruler. And they'll go all the way and get everything they possibly can. And that's the end result. If you sow to the place, you reap corruption. You sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. It doesn't come back in kind. It comes back multiplied times back. Now, the Bible, I, what I, someone said one time, the main thing is the plain thing. The plain thing is the main thing. I am not going to go to some very unclear scripture verses and try to establish a theology. I'm going to take all the clear verses in the scripture concerning marriage and divorce, and when we get through and find that every one of them agree, then we can go to some unclear ones and clear them up. Many books on, on marriage and divorce today, you'll find they'll take the Matthew Pauline exception and Deuteronomy 24, and they'll dance on that and jump on that and say, I don't know why these other verses are over here, but this is what the Word of God says. You don't do it that way. Any good hermeneutic teacher will tell you that you go to the clear verses and see exactly what the clear verses say and then know beyond all shadow of a doubt the unclear verses cannot possibly contradict the clear verses. You with me? Okay, clear verses, very quickly. We already went to Mark 10, 2 through 12. We read that. The second one is found in Luke 16, 18. This is one of the clearest you can possibly get. And let me just describe it, what it's saying to you a little bit. So you can get the picture. Luke 16, 18. Jesus is speaking now. Whosoever. That's the first word. You might want to underline that so you won't forget it. In John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that what? Whosoever believeth in him. Who's that include? Whosoever. Who's whosoever? Whosoever. Anyone. If anyone will believe into Jesus Christ, he should not perish but have everlasting life. Right? Now, here again, he says, Whosoever divorces his wife and marries another, what? What does it say? Committeth adultery. What is adultery? Sex outside the marriage, isn't it? Okay, now, now get this picture. Here's Jack and Jill. They get married and become one flesh in God's sight. Now, Jack goes through his mid, midlife crisis, and he finds Sue and divorces Jill and marries Sue, and Jesus said, He's committing adultery, right? He divorced Jill and married Sue, and now he's committing adultery. Now, first of all, let me tell you something. Adultery is sex outside the marriage, so that means that Jack and Jill are still one flesh in God's sight, or it couldn't be adultery. Jesus said it's adultery. The only way it can be adultery is that Jack and Jill are still one flesh, and here's Jack living over here, Sue, and saying, oh, I got a divorce, and now I'm remarried to Sue, and now it's all over with. No, Jesus, that's adultery. And now here's, I'm going to, I'm sorry, I'm going to use the terms that are used today by our Bleeding hearts. But here's our innocent party, Jill. Our innocent party. That mean old Jack just went off and married Sue and left her high and dry. And here's innocent Jill. And Jesus goes right on. Jack divorced Jill and was committing adultery. And then if someone comes along and marries her that was put away in the divorce, Jill, it causes her to commit adultery. Hello. May I tell you something? You might want to write this down. You can never break a covenant. You can only violate it. Hello? You can't break a covenant. You can violate it, though. That's why adulterers shall be judged. When you make a lifetime covenant, 
The only thing that will break that covenant is if one or the other dies. That's the type of covenant it is. It's a lifetime covenant. When my first wife passed away, I reached up and took my ring off my finger. That to me was a symbol of the promise that I had made to that, that young lady. See, the covenant was gone because we had made it between each other before God and I couldn't be one flesh with her anymore. But that's the only thing that can cause that covenant to come to an end. A person can have 16, 17, 18 relationships with other women, adulterous relationships with other women, but there's not a one of them that will break that covenant. It will only violate it. That's why God says, don't worry about it. I'll take care of that when the time comes. Don't be deceived. Adulterers shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Very clearly. I, I, I'm not interpreting anything here at all. I'm just telling you exactly what Jesus said. Whosoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whosoever marries her that was put away in divorce commits, causes her to commit adultery. Both sides of it. After the first one's already remarried and is living in adultery, the innocent party here, if she gets married, she is completing it again. She's committing adultery. Now, they're both committing adultery. Is that, do you see any, am I interpreting that or am I just telling you what it says? Don't forget, raise my hand, raise your hand if I'm, if I'm interpreting this. The next verse, Romans 6, 1 through 3. I read that just a few moments ago. They that know the law know that a woman is bound to her husband so long as he lives. And Romans 7, thank you. You know what I did? I have a typographical error in here. I had Romans and 1 through 3. <laughs> trying to remember what it was. Romans 7, 1 through 3, thank you. That, that, it says that the only thing that's going to break that is if the husband dies or the wife dies. That's what breaks the covenant. Finish, it doesn't break it, it ends the covenant. 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, another clear verse. Verses 10 and 11. And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. Now that just means separate, it doesn't mean divorce. Let not the wife separate from her husband. But and if she does depart, let her remain what? Single or unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Now it's saying... If a wife, now, and by the way, this is the only exception or out that I find anywhere in Scripture concerning marriage. If somebody says, are you saying it's impossible? Well, no. God says if you have a husband that's beating you half to death and mistreating you and molesting you and tearing you up and you're living in danger, you can move out and remain single. Don't, don't get involved with anyone else and pray that God will cause reconciliation to come that that person will get straightened out so that you can get back together again. That's what it says. God has called us to reconciliation. God has called us to peace, not to tearing each other up. Because if you made a vow to God you're going to love and cherish each other and you don't, and it starts happening, move out and tell that person. Let me just give you an illustration. Let's say that I, I said to Pastor, Pastor, I'm going to give you one car, and you're going to have that car for the rest of your life. You'll never have another car. You cannot have another car. That's the only car you'll ever be able to own the rest of your life. What do you think he'd do with that car? Do you think he'd take it out across the, the cornfield at 40 miles an hour? Across, across the thing? Think he'd do that with his car? The only car he's ever going to have the rest of his life. Or do you think he'd take special care of that car? I mean, he'd wash it, he'd wax it, he'd keep it in the garage, put a cover over it. He'd change the oil probably every 2,000 miles. Because, boy, when that car's gone, he's going to have to hoof it. He'd really take care of it, wouldn't he? But you know what's happened today? We're in a throwaway society. And these, the philosophy of hedonism, which means that a woman is just a pet and a toy, and when you're tired of it, you throw it away and get yourself a new toy, has destroyed our society. If every man on earth and every woman on earth knew that you get one wife and one husband for life, they'd start treating them differently. My wife will confirm to you, 
that I made a promise to God many, many years ago, I never want an, a day or a, a couple of hours to go by. But what I go to her and tell her, do you know how special and how precious you are to me? Do you know, understand how much I love you? You're so special to me. And I try to stop her where she is and, and, and caress her and tell her that I love her that so very, very much. And I'll tell you, my children used to tell me, you have no idea, Dad, what that did for us. And right now, our grandchildren look at us. And when we first, when they first came around, I was around. They said, what are you doing, Grand Nanny? What are you doing, Grandpa? I said, I'm loving my sweetheart. This is my sweetheart. This is my queen. Oh, well, now they just think it's wonderful. But, you know, you've heard of the old fellow who got married and, and, and the wife finally said, when the pastor says, he never tells me he loves me anymore. And so the pastor said, why don't you tell your wife you love her anymore? He said, well, I told her when I got married I loved her. If I ever changed my mind, I'd let her know. No, that's not what it's all about. Husbands, love your wife even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. We have to understand and teach our children that it's once. That's the only one you ever get. Take care of it. Cherish it. Now, some are saying amen, others are saying, oh me, I knew it was going to happen. Amen. Now, while we're in the middle of it, let's go to the verses 12 through 15 in that same chapter. This is part of what's called the, uh, the Pauline, Matthew Pauline exception theory. And you might want to write that down. Matthew Pauline exception theory. It's the heresy that came into our church and is giving license to our, the pastors today to teach this teaching they're teaching. Matthew Pauline exception theory. May I just go back and tell you that for the first 1,500 years of the church, there was no teaching that said you could get divorced and remarried. None. Every one of them said it's for life. Even if you leave your husband or wife, you must remain single until he dies or she dies or whatever. You could not do it. In the 1500s, a man who would, was a defrocked Roman Catholic priest had his works burned by the Roman Catholic Church. A man who tried to fellowship with Martin Luther and, and uh, some of the other uh, Reformationists back in that day was a friend of King Henry VIII who wanted to get rid of his wife of 28 years, and the Roman church wouldn't let him do it, so he pulled the church out of Rome and started the Church of England and uh, started his own church. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We've got more abominations today, uh, denominations today than you can shake a stick at for some of the same reasons of compromise. Well, this same man, who was not a theologian but a philosopher, said, you know, if, if they're not one, the one heart and mind and spirit anyway, there's no sense in them continuing to think they're one place. They might as well just forget it. Uh, he, he created this theology, which is known as the Erasmian view, and today is called the traditional Protestant view, which says, except it be for moral impurity, uh, if somebody gets involved in, in adultery, that's grounds for divorce. And you have heard that theology? If your wife or husband commits adultery, that's grounds for divorce. That was written by a man that Martin Luther spoke of. He said, this man died without light and without truth. He was an enemy of God and his word. He treated Jesus Christ like the court clown, and he stirred up the passions of little boys. Desiderius Erasmus, who is today called the Prince of Humanists in our university libraries, was a homosexual and a child molester, and he's the one that wrote the theology for King Henry VIII that to that day, to this, has progressed down and now called the traditional Protestant view that is being taught from our, from our pulpit. I'm hearing, I'm hearing all these evangelical fundamental preachers that are screaming against humanism in our government, humanism in our schools, and they're preaching pure humanism from the pulpit, from the prince of humanists. That you can get divorced because of this reason, and that reason, and the other reason. But that isn't what the Word of God says. But look what it says here in 12 through 15. But the rest speak I, not the Lord, if any brother 
hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband but that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. May I just read that last verse with you again? But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage. Let me tell you what that Greek word bondage actually means. It's duluo, and it means to be in a state of servility, of slavery, of being trampled upon, of being treated as a vassal slave or as a chattel mortgage. When your partner begins to treat you cruelly, then you are no longer, you don't have to stay into that. You can move out. Now, they say, based upon Matthew 5 and 19, which we'll get to in a few moments, they say that means that you can leave and get married to someone else. Will not compute. Unless you want to admit that Paul the Apostle was schizophrenic. Because here in verses, what were they? Verses 10 and 11, he said unto the married, you can separate but remain single or be reconciled. Look over in verse 39 of that same chapter. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead, she's at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. So here he says you can separate, live singly until you reconcile and get back together again. Here he says you are bound together until death, and then if your partner dies and you're a Christian, you can marry again, but only in the Lord. Do you think Paul's going to come in the middle of that and say, okay, you can get divorced and you can marry someone else? Not unless he's schizophrenic. I don't think he is. In fact, I know he isn't. So that, that translation they're giving you is humanistic, and it was implanted in the church by Desiderius Erasmus, the prince of humanists. Most people do not know that, and most pastors don't want to hear it. I'll tell you, many of the pastors today and many of the evangelical churches are trying to build these great big churches. I'm just about as welcome around their crowd, flock as a ham sandwich in a Jewish synagogue. They don't want me around for any cause. They don't want their people to know that they're not supposed to get divorced and remarried. Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. Verse 4. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. That word whoremongers is pornios, which is the same word used for fornicators. Fornicators and idolaters and adulterers God will judge. Malachi, the second chapter, I already read to that to you a while ago. That's another clear verse that says that you, that you became one by your marriage vows. Married, uh, Malachi 2, 14 through 16. Now, let's quickly go to the unclear verses. Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verses 5 through 12. And said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, glued together, let not man put asunder. And they say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? And he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from, not at, not at, from, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, here it is, except it be for what? Oh, it's not adultery? Did you say adultery? You know what your new reversed visions, I call them, I mean revised versions say? Except for sexual immorality, except for, except for sexual impurity. That isn't what it says at all. The word, two words that are used here, let me read it to you now. And so Mary never committed, excuse me, whosoever shall put away his wife except it be for fornication 
pornea, and shall marry another committeth adultery, moikia, and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. Now, they say the word pornea means any kind of sexual impurity. Now, get this down clearly, please. It's right. They're right. There are places in the New Testament where the word pornea means any kind of sexual impurity. It says flee fornication. That means flee any kind of sexual impurity. They're right. If I were to say to you, here is a basket of fruit, and it had oranges, apples, bananas, pears, peaches, and all that, I would be absolutely honest, wouldn't I? There's a basket of fruit. Would that be a proper statement to make? If there was a basket of fruit there? Okay, or would this be proper too? I say, well, here's a basket, and in it are some grapes, some apples, some oranges, some pears, some peaches, bananas. Would that be proper too? But you see, now I'm being very specific, aren't I? And they say, well, what is said, except to be for fornication, means any kind of sexual impurity. Not at all. Jesus is being very specific. What was it that he, that Joseph thought Mary had committed? Fornication. They still weren't married. It was sex between singles. Now, get this down. Matthew is written to the Jews. You'll find the lineage of Mary and Joseph in the beginning of it. Every time Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, he would talk about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. But over in Mark and Luke, it's always the kingdom of God. In Luke and Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the Jews are always saying, oh, we're going to have a kingdom here on earth. So every time he spoke of it in Matthew, he'd say, no, it's the kingdom of heaven. Oh, it's not going to be here on earth. No, it's the kingdom of heaven. But when he got to the Gentiles, it didn't make any difference. He talked about the kingdom of God. They understood that. This is written to the Jews. And Jesus knew they had an idiosyncrasy in their society, which was called betrothal. When a young man wanted to marry some young girl, he would come to her with witnesses and say, will you marry me? And of course, Ma, the two fathers, way ahead of time, got that lined up. They'd always said, well, why don't you have your daughter Leah marry my son Jacob? I think that's a good idea. Let's just tell them that's what they're going to do. So, I mean, they picked out their marriage partners for them. And some people say, oh, that'd be terrible. Let me tell you something. They didn't have near the mess we've got. Hello. So he would come to her and say, will you be my bride? And he'd set a little cup of wine in front of her. And if she accepted it, she would drink that little cup of wine all the way. She said, drink it all. She just took a sip and meant no, but she drank it all. It means she accepted it. And then he would give some dowry to her parents, and, and then they would plan toward the marriage. Now, by the way, you ever wonder why Jesus, when he gave the, gave the communion cup, he said, drink ye all of it? Do you want to accept my engagement? Drink ye all of it. If you're going to be engaged today, drink all of it. By the way, you're only engaged to Jesus Christ, and if during the time of engagement, one or the other commits adultery, there's grounds for divorce. I don't know, Baptists don't like to hear that. But they would drink it, then they would be engaged. Now, during that time of engagement, society in that day would treat them as though they were married as far as they, they weren't looking around anymore. Mary, the wife of Joseph, being betrothed to him. Joseph, the husband of Mary, being betrothed to him. But in order, now get this, in order for them to break that engagement, they had to get a legal divorce. Their engagement had to have a divorce because it was a public declaration that she would marry him and he gave dowry. They had to go through the process of getting a divorce. Very important for you to understand why, why this, this unclear verse is saying what it's saying. It's not saying except for sexual immorality. It's saying if during the time of engagement one or the other was found to have committed fornication, then and then only was it grounds for divorce. Well, let's read it again. Whosoever shall put away his wife. Oh, they're talking about wife and husband. That's right. Mary, the wife of Joseph. Joseph, the husband of Mary, during the engagement period. Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away, doth commit adultery. 
Now watch what the disciples, how they responded to this. He hit them with something and knocked them for a loop. Remember, Hillel and Shammai already said you could get married for almost, a divorce for almost any reason under the sun. Some were very restrictive, but others were very liberal. So they understood that already. Well, we can get divorced for this or this and this. And Jesus, when he told them this, they said, what? Are you saying that we can never divorce once we get married? It's better never to marry. Isn't that what they said? His disciples say unto him, if the case of the man is so with a wife, his wife, it's not good to marry. Hey, you mean we're locked in? He hit them right between the eyes of something they never had before. That's because he said, but from the beginning, Moses allowed that, but from the beginning it never was so. And I say unto you, in other words, forget what's in the past now. We're going back to what God says. Now there's one other unclear portion, and that's found in Deuteronomy, the 24th chapter. I've got to deal with this for you. This is the one that they're going to choke over and choke over and choke over. They don't like to hear it. In fact, we had a pastor in the group last night that had been putting this down the throat of three ladies that were in the meeting last night and uh, kept telling them they were absolutely wrong because in Deuteronomy it said once you got divorced and remarried, you can never go back to your first partner. But you could get divorced and remarried. And I heard him choking on this last night when I brought out what the Word says on See, when... When Jesus, when the disciple came, Jesus asked him the question about marriage. He said, what did Moses say to you? There's your authority. What did Moses say? Oh, he commanded us to do this. No, he didn't command. He just suffered you because of the hardness of your heart. He allowed you. Do you notice that Jesus didn't say, my father did that? I kept reading that, and I said, why are you blaming Moses? Didn't, didn't the father say that? And you say, no, it's because of the hardness of their hearts back there. They would not stand still for this. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy 24.1. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Let me tell you something. That's part of the Erasmian view, and they are strangling people today on that very thing. People who are trying to get back together, you can't do it. The Bible says if you do it, it's an abomination in your sight. God said it. Did he? Jesus said, Moses said, let's see what God says. Jeremiah, the third chapter. Jeremiah, chapter 3. Now remember what we just read. Very important. Jeremiah chapter 3. Now, this is God speaking in Jeremiah chapter 3. This is what he quotes. Now, look at the, underline the first two words of Jeremiah 3, 1. What does it say? What? God speaking here now. They say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou, what is he quoting there? Deuteronomy 24, wasn't it? He didn't say, I said, did he? He said, they say. You see that? They say. Jesus said, Moses said that. Don't blame my father for that. Moses said that. God here says, they say. But listen to what God says. But thou, Israel, hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return unto me again, says the Lord. He says, that's not the way I operate. That's not the way I operate with you. Look at verse 8. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Look down to verse 12. 
Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. I am a merciful, I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree. And ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. I am married unto you. You've gone off and committed adultery over and over again. That's not the way I operate. You committed adultery time and time again, but I've taken you back, and I'm going to take you back. You know something? He's going to take Israel back again in the end time. Still his wife. You cannot apply Deuteronomy 24 to the situation today. I say to people this, and I wrote this down. If I am going to take Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, and try to apply it today, then I also must take Deuteronomy 15, 12, and 13 that says I can have slaves. If I'm going to take Deuteronomy 24, 1-3, then I'm going to also take Deuteronomy 21 says I can take women as prisoners from war and bring them back home and keep them as my concubines. Why aren't the churches doing that today? If I can believe in 24-1, then I believe I can have multiple wives according to Deuteronomy 21-15. Or I can, if my children get rebellious, according to Deuteronomy 21, 18-21, I can stone my children. Why aren't we going to take that if we're going to take Deuteronomy 24-1? I could go on and on and on and on. You see, the thing happened. Desiderius Erasmus found a verse back there that he could use to twist, to give King Henry and others like him later on the opportunity to get out of a covenant. I actually had a, a theological whale come, wrote, write a letter one time to some friends. They sent it to me. He said, if, if this web is ever off on anything at all, he's really way off there because even Jesus said in Matthew 19, not all men can receive this teaching. There's some people that can't possibly be his one wife. They've got to get divorced get married, remarried. You see that where he said that? All men cannot receive this thing. Save them to, save them to, save them to whom it is given. He wasn't saying that about what he said. He was saying that about what the disciples said back to him. If this is true, it's better for a man never to marry. He said, not everybody can say that because there's some people that need to be married. See what he was saying? He's oh, but man, he really missed it here. Jesus said, uh, you, you can't get divorced and remarried, but not everybody can receive that, which means some of you will have to get divorced. That wasn't what Jesus was saying at all. He was saying, some of you are saying, it's better never to marry then. And he said, you know, there's some people that do. He went right on. He said, there's some people that are eunuchs by, uh, for, there are some eunuchs which were born from their mother's womb. There are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. And there are some eunuchs uh, which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. If you don't want to get married, that's up to you. But there's some people that will marry. And if they marry, they have to understand it's for life. Now, may I just tell you again, you don't have to agree with me. I'm only sharing with you the truth that God has shown me from his word. And I ask you again, like the Bereans in Acts 17, 10, and 11, go home and search the scriptures, because you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You know why so many Christians are vacillating today? Because they don't know what the word says clearly. If you can get a solid foundation from the Word of God and get it under your feet and get it in your heart, people will not be able to stand against you. Now, they'll turn against you, but they won't be able to stand against you. And I want to tell you something. If we don't speak the truth, the world isn't going to speak it for us. We have to be that light and that salt that stops the corruption in this world. Obedience to this will bring blessing. If you allow it to begin to permeate this congregation, I'll tell you, in the next generation, this church will not be worth anything but to be trampled under the feet of men, Jesus said. When the salt has lost its savor, it's good for nothing. When I begin to leave, start to leave some friends, sometimes they say, you'll be good now. I keep telling them I'm paid to be good. You're good for nothing. And Jesus said the church is good for nothing if it loses its savor. Repentance brings forgiveness. Obedience brings blessing. Now, 
when I talk about repentance, and I can't get into this, I have a long chapter in my book. The longest chapter in my book is on the subject of genuine repentance, admitting it and quitting it. I presented my book to the, the, the gentleman who taught me theology many, many years ago in Minnesota. Gave him my book, and he came back later. He said, I want to just tell you something. And here's a man that has written theology books. He said, that chapter on, on repentance is the best I have ever read on theology. And I said to him, Brother, I want to tell you something. I did not know what to say in there, and I asked God to show me how to simply describe and explain what true repentance is. And he says, the best I have ever seen written. That was a real thrill to me to hear that come from a man of God like that. He's since then gone to be with the Lord. But when we talk about repentance, look at Proverbs 28.13. Proverbs 28.13. Proverbs 28.13. says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes it shall have mercy. Confessing and forsaking, admitting and quitting. There are the two words. Confessing and forsaking sin. You can confess it. I've had people say, I'm sorry. I know I made a mistake and I'm sorry. Now God will forgive me. I said, no, God won't forgive you. You've admitted it. Now quit it. Well, God knows my heart. I said, that's why you need to quit it because he does know your heart. Metanoia in the New Testament in Acts 17.30, the word metanoia for repent means to have another mind. Have a mind of God. In, in uh, the verse in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word, if we confess, that word confess means to come say the same thing as God says. If God says it's adultery, you call it adultery. If God says it's fornication, you call it fornication. Now, if God says it's adultery and you say it's a fine Christian couple, you're a liar and God's true because every man, let every man be a liar, but let God be true. So if you want to be a liar, you say something contrary to what God says. And if you and I join in with those that are doing these things, the Bible says we become partaker of that sin. If we say, oh, well, the Lord bless you, you know, may God's grace or peace be with you, and uh, don't do that. He said if somebody comes to your door and brings any other kind of a gospel, you don't you even say God's speed to them, or you become partaker in their evil deeds. And let me tell you, it's the hardest thing in the world today to get people to stand up and say, I will not go to that, that so-called wedding. I'll not participate in that thing that you're calling a wedding, because it's not a wedding. They're stepping into adultery. And the adulterer shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We're talking about something serious here. We're talking about life and death. Don't be deceived. The adulterer shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Am I going to put my blessing on that? Am I going to go and smile while these people are doing this thing? Absolutely not. Metanoia. Epistrophor was the other one which, which talks about a complete turnaround. It means you're going in this direction, like Shub means. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. He's walking away from God. Turn around. Go in the other direction. Some people say, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Now, that's not repentance. Repentance, turn around, I'll forsake that. Admit it and quit it. Get away from it. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We now say what God says. I don't know about you, but I would agree with God any day before I'd agree with man. What I'm sharing with you again, you do not have to agree with me, but you do have the responsibility, like Bereans, to go home and search the Scriptures and see if what I've told you tonight is true. And if it is, you're responsible one way or another to do it or not do it, his word will not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent forth. Ten basic convictions, a scriptural convictions here, which every man must teach his family in order to protect them from the destructive influences of wrong desires, false philosophies, 
and satanic temptation. We have gone down through the first seven, and we want to start today on the eighth conviction. The eighth conviction is, my money is a trust from God and must be earned and managed according to scriptural principle. Now again, I'm talking about not a preference, but I'm talking about a conviction. And you remember that I said a conviction is a basic scriptural principle which we purpose to follow, whatever the cost. A basic scriptural conviction or principle that we purpose, which we purpose to follow, whatever the cost. Again, I want to emphasize this fact that I'm not talking about a denominational conviction. I'm not talking about an ecclesiastical conviction. I'm talking about a scriptural conviction. Something that we can see is taught clearly in the Word of God. Once we find a scriptural conviction, something that is absolutely clear, and I think you know what we're talking about with conviction in some areas because there's some areas that we say, this is what it says. There's no other way around it. And when you can find that the Word of God is that clear, a basic scriptural principle, we should purpose to follow it at any cost. Now, let me say again, I'm talking to fathers. I'm talking to mothers. These convictions need to be established in your home between you and your spouse and taught by both of you to your children. Why? Because in the days ahead it will bring forth fruit. Contrary-wise, if your home is built up on preferences and wishy-washy and double-minded type standard, in the end result you're going to see disaster in the lives of your children as they go out of the home. Now, I have been in the ministry long enough to tell you in deep concern and love that I know what I'm talking about. If you have not established convictions, scriptural convictions in your home, we do not do this, we will not have this in our home because the Word of God says, then you are headed for trouble down the road. It's just as automatic as night follows day. But if you establish convictions, and you don't say you'll do it or else in the home, but you say rather, let me show you why we do or do not do what we do or do not do in this home. It's because of the Word of God, and that is our standard. Now, the minute you do it, you're going to be setting yourself up for criticism down the road because you set a conviction in your home and say, this is our conviction in the home, and down the road you're going to slip sometimes, and junior or junioress is going to come to you and say, hey, I thought this was a conviction, but look what you just did. Now, I understand that if you don't like that kind of pressure, you're not going to like convictions in your home. You're just going to want preferences because you'll be able to say again, well, I didn't exactly mean this. You know, when a conviction comes, you remember what I told you about a conviction? It must be seen in your daily living. That's number one. Two, it must not change. Three, it must be consistent. That's a conviction in your home. I think I shared with you not too long ago about the young boy that his daddy asked him what he was going to do about Lent, what he was going to give up for Lent. We don't go through that in our particular fellowship here, but there's some denominations and ecclesiastical groups that during Lent give up something, quote unquote. And when they give up this thing, they're supposed to be sacrificing to, to refer back to the time when Jesus Christ sacrificed for us. But the scripture tells me he paid the full price. We don't have to sacrifice any further. But anyway, he said, son, what are you going to give up for Lent? And he said, uh, I don't know, what are you giving up? He said, well, I'm giving up alcohol, alcoholic beverage. He said, oh. He said, well, wait a minute, you're giving it up? He said, I just saw you drinking some wine for supper last night. He said, I'm just talking about hard liquor. I'm giving that up for Lent. The kid says, oh, okay. He says, then I'm just going to give up hard candy for Lent. 
Now, don't be fooled. Kids can tell when you've got a conviction or a preference. They know if you're consistent. They can see a phony a mile off. And so when I say establishing your home conviction, it's going to cost something. But always make sure that that conviction is based upon the Word of God. Now, this one we're talking about today, my money is a trust from God. About three years ago, and I was amazed how long ago it was, I preached the message on you can't outgive God. If you want to hear the whole message, it's in the tape library, and you're welcome to get it. But let me just share with you some scriptural principles that I brought out at that time that should be established in your life in order that you can come to this eighth conviction, that my money is a trust from God and must be earned and managed according to scriptural principle. The first thing I want you to do is turn to Matthew, the 25th chapter. Matthew 25, and I want to read to you from verse 14. Matthew 25, beginning with verse 14. Jesus is speaking here. He said, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who, is, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. Who is this man that traveled in a far country in this parable? Say it again. Jesus Christ, all right? He's trying to talk about the fact that Jesus came to earth and went away, and he's coming back again. That's the whole principle here. So if you'll understand who he's talking about, you'll get a little better interpretation here. A man traveling into a far country who called his whose servants? His own servants. Who's that? Us. Who's us? Christians. All right, I want to make that very clear. If you're a churchgoer, he's not talking about that. He's talking about someone who has committed their life to the lordship of Jesus Christ and have become his bondservant. That's what that servant there means, is doulos, his slave, bond slave, who called his own servants and delivered unto them what? Look at it. What does it say? Oh, his goods. All right. And unto one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one. To every man according to his several abilities. In other words, in proportion to their ability. And then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them five, the other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. Whose money? Okay. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them, or asked for an accounting. And so he that had received the five talents came, and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. Who came back? And what did he do? What did he ask for? Come on, are you here this morning? What did he ask for? Look at it, it's an open book test. He asked for an accounting, didn't he? What's an accounting? I want to know what you did with what you, I gave you. Is that what it is? You give your, your son a dollar and you send him to the store to get some bread? No, not bread anymore. You give your son two dollars and send him to the store to get some bread, and he comes back and you say, son, give me an accounting. What have you got left over? Son, the bread says 99 cents and you've only got 85 cents left over. What happened? Give me an accounting. Well, that candy bar sure looked good, you know. He gave an accounting. What did you do with what I gave you? All right. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Verse 21. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee rule over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Get this principle down into your heart. If you're faithful with what God gives you, he'll give you more. If you're not faithful with what God gives you, don't expect that you have not given you anything more. If God has given you truth and you don't act on that truth, don't expect him to give you more truth. Amen? Amen. If God gives you truth and you don't act on it, He's not going to give you more until you act on the truth you've got. 
I've seen some people go through life year after year after year and never get the victory, never grow in grace, never get on their feet, never get established, never become a blessing to others, because back there they learned the truth that meant that they had to commit everything to Jesus Christ. They never did it, and they're still floundering. See, God's not going to give them anymore until they act on what they already know. That's the principle here. Verse 22. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. And by the way, you notice he didn't compare himself with the guy that got five talents and made it into ten. He just simply told what he had done. And so many times we're going around saying, I just wish I could be like brother such and such or sister such and such. I wish I had all the talents they have. No, no, don't do that. Don't say, I wish I had all the talents they have. Because if you did, you'd be responsible for all those talents. But thank God for the talents you do have and ask God what you can do with the talents that you do have so that you can multiply them. And when he comes back, he can say to you what he's saying to this man. Verse 23, his Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over what? You notice something? He said the very same thing to him as he said to the other servant. I'll make thee ruler over many things. Both of them had been faithful to the extent of their own capacity and capability. Then, he which had received the one talent, somebody says, that's me, Lord, came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast, that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest, therefore, to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury or interest. Take, therefore. What does that say? Say it. Take, therefore. Take, therefore. The other is he, he said, I'm going to give you more. Now look what happened to the one that didn't use it. Take, therefore, the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. Oh, what, doesn't the guy with ten talents have enough? No. The Lord said he was faithful with that. Now I can trust him with more. But that wicked and slothful servant wasn't faithful with one talent. And the Lord says, just take that away from him and give it to the one that I can depend upon. God is looking for men and women and young people he can depend upon. Amen? That's what he's saying here. Depend upon. Count upon. No, no, no. You know, there are some people... And I've been, again, in the ministry long enough to be able to say this without having to worry about someone saying he's talking about me. I can say this from 25 years in the ministry almost now, that there are some people you can never depend on, and there are some people you can sometimes depend on, but thank God there's others that you can always depend on. And if you want to know how God must feel, then you ought to know how it feels in a place of responsibility where you have to depend on other people. To where you can just say, it is finished. I have given it to them. I don't have to worry about it. It's done. And others, you have to prod them and pull on them and jerk on them. And of course, many times they're the first ones to go off and say, well, they'll just never use me. They just never let me do anything in that church. Because they can't, they aren't dependable. And the Lord says, take that talent away from that. I can't depend on that person. Give it to the one with ten talents. Now, I didn't say that. The Lord did, you see? But that's exactly the way it happened. Verse 29. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. He's going to be more destitute. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, 
There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Praise the Lord. Principle number one. You don't own yourself. It said there in the 14th verse, who called his own servant. And again, if you understand the principle of a bond slave of, that was involved in Christ's day, you'll realize that that person was somebody who just understood he didn't own himself. He sold himself to his master. Now that's the first principle that a Christian has to understand. If you say that Jesus Christ has redeemed you from your sins and has come into your life and you've made him Lord of your life, you are saying, I have given title deed to myself to Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, but keep your thumb there at Matthew 25. 1 Corinthians 6. Now we're looking for a scriptural principle upon which we're going to establish a conviction. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are what? Ye are not your own. Do you know that for a fact? That you're not your own body, soul, mind, and spirit? Have you ever come before the Lord and said, Lord, I just want to confess to you today that I know what the Scripture teaches, that I'm not my own. I am yours completely, yours to control, yours to direct, yours to use, yours to teach, yours to lead, yours to stop, whatever you need to do, Lord. You need to make that as a biblical principle in your life. Lord, I am not my own. I like how the prophet said in the Old Testament that we are the, he is the potter and we are the clay. Now clay can be unmoldable and then when it is, it's thrown back on the scrap heap and ground up again and run through again and they try it again and if there's lumps in it, they throw it out and grind it up again, start all over again. And finally, if they can't do anything with it, it just won't, won't uh, become pliable, they have to throw it away in the trash heap. But you and I must understand that when we come to the Lord, we have to say, He's the shepherd, we're the sheep. He's the potter, and we're the clay, whatever He wants us to be. And that's why Paul said, some, there are some vessels under honor. There are some vessels that are fit to. There's others that are set up on a shelf, a gold vessel that is held there for honor and used only for the finest occasion. And if we'll put ourselves down, God will put us up on that other shelf up there. But if our desire is always to be up on the upper shelf, we're going to end up being a spit tomb. Because you don't let him be the potter in us, the clay. He said, you're not your own. That's the principle we need to establish in our heart here. And you're not your own. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which what? Are God. Christian principle number one, you don't own yourself. If you still go around saying, this is my life, I'll do what I want to with it, then you don't understand your relationship as a Christian to God. At Calvary, you resigned yourself of yourself and said, hey, I died. I died. I, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet this is no longer me that's living. I'm not the one that's living anymore. But what? Christ is living his life out through me now. My body is a vessel, a temple of the Holy Ghost through which the Holy Spirit is going to make Jesus Christ a reality to others round about me. Now, if you never learn that principle to teach in your home, you're going to have difficulty all the way through your home experience. And your children are going to go into their homes and have difficulty. And your grandchildren are going to have difficulty in their homes. Because this has to become a conviction of yours that I'm not my own. I don't have any rights anymore. 
My rights were all laid on the cross. They belong. My rights, I've given them over to Jesus Christ. Lord, whatever you'd have me to do, wherever you'd have me to go, anywhere or nowhere, anything or nothing. You see what I'm saying? How many understand what I just said? Let's see your hands. Come on. Okay. I just want to make sure you understand. If you know the Bible, it says that we're not our own. Now, based upon that principle, if I'm not my own, I can't own anything then, can I? Principle number two. You do not own one earthly possession. You say, Brother Webb, I do. I've got title to it. Well, let's talk about it. The scriptural position is that you and I do not own one earthly possession. Verse 14 there in chapter 25 again. What does it say? He delivered unto them what? His goods. The Lord, before he went away on a journey, he went to his servants, his bond slaves, and delivered unto them his goods. I must recognize, along as well as you should recognize, that everything that God has placed into my hands, I have to say, this is the Lord. My house my property, my children, my wife, my health, my talent, my strength, all this is the Lord. I have given everything totally to Jesus Christ. I've given my business to the Lord Jesus Christ. No possessions are mine. Look at Psalm 24.1. Psalm 24.1. In case you feel that this, this might not be something you can live with. Psalm 24.1. Now, if you, don't, if you don't live anywhere in this area, well, you don't have to worry about it. But if you happen to live in this area, the Lord's already given claim and title to this. See, the, the what? The earth. The earth is the Lord's and the what? Fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. How many of you are excluded from what he just described? God says, now you say that some of that stuff down there is yours, but I'm telling you, it's all mine. Get your priorities in order. Realize that if you're mine, then all that you possess is mine. Look at Psalm 50, verse 10. Psalm 50, verse 10. Have any animals you hate, hate to see gone, hate to lose? Or animals you think, boy, I'm raising myself a nice herd of fine animals? Look what the Lord said there in Psalm 50, verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. The Lord says, hey, everything is mine. And somebody says, no, this is mine. Look back at 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles, chapter 29. David was just getting ready to build the, the temple, and uh, they, he brought offerings and so forth to the Lord. And beginning in chapter 29, verse 11 through 16, I want you to see that David, a man after God's own heart, saw this principle. He understood this principle that everything he belonged to the Lord and everything he had was the Lord's. Listen to it. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Wow. For all that is in the heaven and in the, what? Is who? Thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both, here it comes, both riches and honor, what? Come of thee. Do you have riches? Do you have prosperity in your home? Please don't say, see what I have done. Don't ever do that. The goodness and the mercy of the Lord hath blessed me and made me responsible for these possessions that he's brought into my hands. And I, I stand as a steward before God and must seek his direction and his guidance and his wisdom to know how he wants me 
to use and administer those blessings which he's brought into my hands. Do you understand what he's saying here? He blesses and he gives, and then we become responsible. 